Well, to make sure that I get through this passage that I started two weeks ago, I'm going to break with how I usually do things and start by reading today's passage, and that will force me to get to the end. So, Acts 5, verses 40 through 42. It also helps that it's only three verses. You'll remember from last week, I hope, that Gamaliel, the Rabban of the Sanhedrin, the, the Grand Master, addressed the council of the Jews concerning the apostles, who the council wanted to kill. Gamaliel concluded his advice, but we'll start in verse 38. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So that, that is what Gamaliel had to say. Now, they call, uh, verse 40 says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So our passage today has the apostles rejoicing for being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You know, there are so many verses about suffering. There are so many that I only selected. I mean, honestly, there were pages and pages and pages of uh, verses about suffering. And, uh, but I just selected a, a few, and they're from Peter. Peter, who was there for Jesus' suffering, uh, both his mental suffering and his physical suffering. And, and Peter, who would also know real suffering of his own. In First Peter uh, chapter 1, He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In chapter 2, for this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In chapter 3, he continues, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Chapter 4. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And chapter 5. And I'll stop with chapter 5. I don't know how many more of these I had. But after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, there's so many more uh, that uh, we could go in and do the whole entire sermon out of this. So, I have a question. God created everything. So, what is the suffering all about? Why do we not just go, as the Psalms say, from strength to strength? What is God's point 
in suffering? Uh, Couldn't what God desires for us happen in our lives without suffering? Now today happens to be Palm Sunday. I've heard it described many times as Christ's triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. You know, people shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. So they were anticipating Jesus to come to Jerusalem, be installed as the king, and to save now, probably saving from the Romans, not saving from sins, but saving from Romans. They laid palm branches in his path and waved them as he proceeded into Jerusalem. Palm branches are the traditional Israelite uh, symbol of victory. When, King, when David won his victories, they would wave palm branches. But Jesus knew what entering Jerusalem really meant. Entering Jerusalem for him meant torture, humiliation, and death. Yes, there would be triumph, triumph over the grave, but put in the grave, he would be. And his death as eternal God would be eternal. And his suffering would be eternal. And his death would be eternal. Because that's how eternity works, by the way, just to let you know. Saying Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphant is like saying that Marie Antoinette walked up the guillotine steps in triumph. No, she went facing her death. And Jesus is entering Jerusalem facing his death. And it's not like he didn't know what was going to happen. We know that Jesus suffered when he was scourged and crucified, but Jesus was suffering well before that. You know, physical pain is not the only type of suffering people go through. In fact, perhaps mental anguish is more of a suffering than a temporal physical ailment would be. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples what is about to happen. Verse 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. From that time on, Jesus told them what was going to happen. But they probably didn't believe him, probably because they did not want to believe what he was saying. They didn't want to believe that Jesus was leaving them. They didn't want to believe that he would be killed. They didn't believe that he would be raised from the dead. So they did not want him to die. Peter thinks Jesus is just talking here. You can see that in his reply. This shall never happen to you. Verse 24 says, 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If the disciples were paying attention, they would have said, Cross? Cross? How did a cross get into this? A cross is for criminals. Jesus, you're just a teacher. You're a religious teacher. What are we talking about? A cross? What are we talking about? Take up my cross and follow you. This does not make sense. They didn't say that though. And they also did not believe him. I wonder when the suffering for Jesus began. When did it start for you? I know that people have different times when they start realizing what suffering is. One of my earliest memories is playing on a front lawn of my house, summertime, I was probably six or so, getting dark, summertime, playing outside. Then again, San Fernando Valley, it doesn't matter. You, you could play any time of the year. I stepped on a rake, and it was like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, okay? Right there, right between the eyes, and I saw stars. I don't know if any of you have ever seen stars like the cartoons have above you. Uh, I've had it twice up here with accidents. I, I was re- removing something one time that was just stuck. It was a, uh, I showed you my uh, a mortar, a square chisel mortiser robin. And I, I always try outfit things before I put them together. And I cannot get it apart. And I cannot get it apart. And I can't get it apart. I finally put it down on and stand on it and jerk. And, you know, it finally came loose. And I hit myself right there with the uh, tenon. And I saw stars. So I want you to know that that really is possible, like the uh, Looney Tunes. But that wasn't suffering. I was six. That was an injury. I must have had a really nice childhood because I didn't really know what suffering was until junior high school. Anyway, it's now called middle school and starts at sixth grade, but junior high school in Los Angeles was seventh grade. And I went out of out of my town. There it sounds so backward. Now there was no junior high school in my town when I was a kid. What can I say? There wasn't. There is several now, you know, but uh and so I left the town that I was familiar with, went to some other kid's town, Canoga Park, where they were all established. Nobody knew me. I was forgotten. All my glories of my elementary school days. And I suffered because I was concerned with myself. Okay? When did you discover you were different than other people? For me, it was seventh grade. And how was I different for other people? Well, they were other people, you know? They thought the same things. They, they thought they were different than everybody else. I think it's a junior high school type of thing. I think that suffering begins probably when you realize, when you have self-realization. For me, that was about the age of 12, maybe 13. Last week, we talked about Jesus in the temple. I suspect Jesus began to realize he was different when he was sitting with those teachers in the temple, asking them questions, 
and them being amazed at what he had to say. He was 12. There's probably a similar reason why a bar mitzvah for Jewish males are done at the age of 12, 213. At a bar mitzvah, on the completion of it, you are considered an adult in the Jewish religion. We have a, I've got it written, the Christian mistaken equivalent of an age of accountability. I don't believe in an age of accountability. It is an Armenian thing that, that up till 12, 13, when you can make a decision for Christ, you're free. You're good to go. Uh, if you die before then, God takes you into heaven. That's not what Scripture teaches. This sermon is not concerned with what uh, Scripture teaches. That's not what I mean. That, uh, the point of this is not that. It's that age of accountability, you know, 12, 13, we start looking at, at least in the Reformed Church, that a child can make their own mind up, accept Jesus Christ, decide to be call on Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior and be baptized. Lauren was baptized probably at the age of 12. We have the same idea of when children become an adult and it's probably when they start understanding who they are. Did Jesus come to understand just who he was? From his time with the teachers in the temple, scripture does not say, and yet it would not surprise me if that was true. Is this also the same age one begins to understand suffering? I would not be surprised at that either. Self-awareness and suffering go together. It would seem that the suffering of Jesus, and yes, the disciples, was equal parts physical pain and mental anguish. Resurrection Sunday is a remembrance of the cruelty that Jesus experienced. And that's what we focus on. But but the intense prayerful pleadings of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane was was also awful suffering. To the point of Jesus sweating blood, a condition known as hematidrosis, which I had to look up, but which does exist, which is brought on by intense fear or stress. It's interesting to read about it. It is such a rare condition that there's not that much information on it, except that medical authorities know that it does exist. In our passage today, we will now see the apostles' reaction to the punishment decided on by the Jewish council for themselves. The Jewish leaders were bound and determined to do away with the dangerous, to them, preaching of the apostles about and in the name of Jesus. They had thought that killing Jesus would end this threat to them. They thought that scourging Jesus first to the point of death and then crucifying him would stop any more of this foolishness Nobody else would want to risk what Jesus went through, which is why it was made a public spectacle in the first place. Hanging a man on a cross, humiliating him by stripping him of clothes and dignity, 
And then dying a criminal's death would be enough. After all, one who hangs on a tree is to be considered cursed. And yet, these men were preaching Christ and Him crucified. The Jewish council is determined to end this once and for all. And verses 39 through 40 say, So they took his advice, which is Gamaliel's advice, and when they had called in the apostles, and I'll pause there, remember that Gamaliel had the apostles removed from the council chambers while he decided their fate. Now, the last week I gave a defense of Gamaliel, uh, which I still stand by. I, I, I like my version of this story uh, quite a bit. However, other commentators condemn his actions. Gamaliel had counseled, as you may recall, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days, Thutis perished, and we heard about Thutis, and then we heard about um, the other rabble-rouser. He says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be uh, able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. They could even end up by fighting against God. Now, John MacArthur says of Gamaliel, while Gamaliel's counsel seemed wise to the Sanhedrin, the notion that whatever succeeds has God's blessing is false. Cults and false religions in our day have millions of followers. And what more evidence did he need to convince him beyond the empty tomb of Jesus and the miracles performed by the apostles? The word to all such fence-sitters is, now is the acceptable time, behold, now is the day of salvation. He says Gamaliel was a pragmatist, a poor substitute for a good biblical scholar. Now, I still stand with my account from last week and believe that Gamaliel did his best to spare the apostles. So it says in verse 40b, they called in the apostles, and then they beat them. Now this cheery little detail almost slips by. The understatement in the Bible is truly glorious. The way things are stated throughout the Bible, these little things get said, and without, without any amplification. Because... Saying that they beat them doesn't really do justice to the reality. First of all, the beating would not be beating with fists, a little bit of a roughing up, which is what it sounds like. You know, let's just go knock them around a little bit and let them go. Instead, it was a whipping with a three-quarter whip, a scourging. Jewish law did not allow 40 strokes of the whip because 40 strokes of the whip was considered to be fatal. And so in their compassion, the Jews only gave 40 minus 1 lashes, okay? 39 lashes. Was 39 lashes fatal? Probably a lot, but 40 was considered certainly fatal. So the apostles here would have been given 39 strokes of the lash. Their backs would have been shredded. They would have been close to passing out from loss of blood. In short, 
None of them would have been feeling top-notch as they left the council of the Jews. In 40, verse 40b goes on to say that after beating them, they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Well, we know how that is going to go. All of these men, like I said last week, with the exception of the Apostle Paul, will be martyred for preaching in the name of Christ. In the case of John, it's not for lack of trying. All the apostles and many of the disciples will spend the rest of their lives preaching in the name of Jesus. And the reason I say most of the disciples is... uh, I don't even know if I said most of the disciples because we don't know what all the disciples did. We know what some of them did, but the the scriptures are more concerned with the preaching of the apostles. And so is the history of uh, Christianity is more concerned with showing what the apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus did. But then again, we know that Philip, uh, who was a deacon in the church of Rome, was the first missionary. He's the fellow who preached in, Aaron was asking me this question, uh, preached in Samaria. He was the one sent to the Ethiopian eunuch. He performed many miracles himself. So we know what some of them did, but not what all of them did. But I would say that it wasn't just the apostles who preached the rest of their lives, but many of the disciples themselves Verse 40C through 41B says that the council let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. That sounds pretty anticlimactic. So speaking of anticlimactic, we now come to the verse that inspired my title uh, for these three sermons, uh, which is the beatings will continue until morale improves. Last week I joked that the beatings might have improved the morale of the Sanhedrin, However, we know from the actions of the apostles in this verse that the good feelings for the Sanhedrin would not last because the apostles were not about to change their ways. Verse 41 says in full, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The beatings did improve their morale. These men, now, when I say this, consider who these men were. Just weeks before, they fled from the arrest of their Lord Jesus. In one case, one of them denied even knowing him three times. They didn't go to his crucifixion, they didn't believe in his resurrection. They hid in the upper room after his burial, afraid that they were the next ones that were going to be arrested, simply because of their belief in Jesus. But now, they've been arrested, beaten, and have not backed down in the face of the Sanhedrin for their belief in Jesus. And they are now working miracles. They are... Uh, by the power of Jesus' name. They are preaching in his name, and now, as he predicted, they are suffering for his name's sake and rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor because the beatings, as painful as they were, was a dishonor. Uh, We're talking about an honor society. The reason that Jesus was treated the way he was 
wasn't just to be cruel, it was to dishonor him. And to beat somebody like the apostles were beaten in front of the Sanhedrin was to dishonor them and to make them ashamed. Verse 41 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And let's not think of this going house to house that it says here, of being like, oh, the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door. This is not what is going on here. Remember that home churches were the rule of the day. There was no building large enough in Jerusalem to, well, certainly not to take the five to 10,000 people who were now Christians and in the church. The reason that the disciples, and I've said this before, met in the upper room was because it was the largest room that they could find and it would hold maybe 140 people. So maybe the size of this sanctuary, which holds a lot more, but the seating's probably better than they had. The upper room was the biggest room they could find. They could not find any place to have a church meeting for not just the whole church, but for a portion of their church. So undoubtedly what they had were any number of houses they would go to be able to teach the five to 10,000 Christians in the city. But they also did not neglect teaching in the temple because the temple was where they would find those who had not yet embraced Jesus Christ. This was their mission field. This was where they would evangelize at was in the temple itself. And even though they were told not to return there, they went to the temple for their evangelism. In both settings, they were teaching that which the authorities forbade them doing. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You know, I have previously talked about the so-called the purveyors of the so-called health and wealth gospel, the false teachers like Joel Osteen who tell you that God wants you to be rich and against almost all scriptural evidence. You know, Jesus said, birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, I hate to tell people who believe in these things, was not a rich man. We don't know about his health. But he was not a rich man. He did not sugarcoat what being a follower of his meant. Among other things, he he told his followers, in this world you will have trouble. In John 15, 8-21, Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. Think about, look at the world that we have today. Look at the people who are hated in it. Christians are hated. People who hold to morality are hated in it. But the world, the world loves it, just absolutely loves its own. Anyway, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will always, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do, that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. In Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Rather than a health and wealth gospel, Jesus preaches poverty and suffering, service against persecution, perseverance until glory. When the risen Savior recruits Saul of Tarsus, the terror of the believers in Jerusalem and moving out to the rest of the world, Jesus said, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And Saul in turn, as the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Later on in chapter 6, he says, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. Chapter 4 says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. There's a verse for today. I'm perplexed all the time at what is going on. Absolutely perplexed. And to the Thessalonians, he said, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, or to Timothy, who he considered to be his son. 2 Timothy 1.8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, it is not surprising that cults would take the concept of suffering and distort it because cults distort anything that they can. That seems to be the function of cults to pervert teaching. And and you'll note that I did not say Christian cult here. And I'm going to give you one. Because there's no such thing as a Christian cult. Okay? You're either an Orthodox Christian or you're not a Christian at all. Okay? If you think you're in a Christian... Well, nobody ever thinks they're in a Christian cult. <laughs> they think they're in restored Christianity, don't they? They think that they're in the real thing. But you are either an Orthodox Christian or you are no Christian at all. As I've pointed out, Galatians has the Apostle Paul saying in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ Jesus and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So, the Mormons are not a Christian cult. They are accursed. Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian cult. They are accursed, and not by my words, but the Apostle Paul's words and their own in their perversion of Orthodox Christianity. 
And cultic distortion of Christian teaching extends to the concept of suffering. I know a person who got involved in a cult. Now this cult has a property, and I looked them up, and they're still going, because my experience is from 50 years ago. Uh, And this cult is still going. They have 1,200 acres up in Northern California. That's two square miles. This person I knew was given a chore of clearing poison oak on the ranch. And this person has a terrible, terrible allergic reaction to poison oak. And ended up, for an extended stay, in the hospital. And later I confronted the situation. I, I said, uh, you know you can't be around poison oak, Right? answer was, yeah, I know. And I said, why did you do this? And the answer was, Jesus suffered. And so I should suffer too. Um, I'm sorry, but I was not particularly gracious in response. Because if you do that, you're not sharing Christ's suffering. You chose to do something that could kill you voluntarily that had nothing to do with the gospel. I will take you back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is God. Jesus prays to God the Father that the cup that he is about to drink passes him by. He said, God, if it be your will, let this pass me by. He was not seeking out to suffer. He was hoping it would pass him by, but willing to suffer the consequences. The apostles who went to their death preaching God did not look to die. They looked to live for Christ. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he was willing to die. But he wasn't looking to die. He was willing to suffer. He was not looking to suffer. As we go in our lives, hopefully we will not deny Christ when the time comes. We will not say, I never knew him. Neither will we stop preaching in his name. And neither will we look to die. You know, I've talked to you about early rain covenant church in China. The pastors there, and there are several, and several of them are in jail. And they will not stop preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Neither do they want to be in jail. I read you a statement from a pastor who said, you know, I understand the Chinese government's statement on this. I disagree with it, and I'm willing to take the consequences. That does not mean that they are volunteering for the consequences. If they are to be punished, they will be punished. Do not go looking for suffering. Jesus has promised that in this life we will suffer. Those are his own words. We do not have to go looking for it. 
The apostles knew what was coming for them, but they did not throw their lives away. Paul knew what was in store, but he kept on in the faith. To all, that's also what we're called to do. That in the end, we can say like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We're called to love his appearing. We're called to preach his word. We're called not to deny him. We're not called to suffering, but we are told that we will suffer. Let's close in prayer.